Glad you guys are here. For those of you who are joining us online, glad you join us online. I'm Sean, you're you. We're going to be in Matthew 20. If you have a Bible, you can go there. But while you're turning there, I got a, a, a cool observation I want to give to you this morning. Um, so every Wednesday, there's a group of pastors that get together right out in this room out here um, with the chairs and around the little table thing there. And we get together and we just kind of share life a little bit together and we pray for one another and we pray together. And um, uh, first of all, I just want you to know, like, that's actually unique, sadly, for a lot of communities. Um, there, there's a group of pastors here that love one another, encourage one another. And just this week, someone asked me this question. They said, um, they said uh, do churches like, do they compete with each other? Right? Now, if we're going to be honest, most of the time, shh. The answer is yeah. I mean, we probably shouldn't, but if we're going to be honest, most of the time, the answer is yeah. But I want to show you that there's something different about this community, and, and you live in a really great community with some really great churches, and it is an honor to be able to pastor in this community. Here's, here's the example. So most of you guys know, if you're new here, you may not know, that our worship pastor in mid-August took a job at George Fox and is now running their worship department at George Fox University. So we've been in the process of searching for a new worship pastor, and we have um, someone that they're going to be here October 31st is the game plan and October 17th we're going to be able to announce who they are but in the meantime we're wanting to give them a chance to really finish well where they're at so um, we have someone committed and they're ready to get here and get going and stuff but but we're not going to tell you who that is quite yet for two more weeks okay so in the meantime we've had to fill in because it's hard to have a Sunday morning service without uh, a worship team and all of our worship people are incredible, but they also have full-time jobs. And if you've never led worship, it is a demanding thing. They're here on Wednesday or Thursday night for a couple hours, and then they show up at like 6.30 in the morning on Sunday morning. They're here till one. It's a really demanding thing. So we asked, we put the word out and asked some other churches if they'd be willing to help us kind of fill the gap in the in-between time. And um, I don't know if you noticed this, but two weeks ago, two weeks ago, the Village Church um, which is in Adair Village. They're our granddaughter church. We planted Dallas Church, Dallas Church, planted Corvallis Church, Corvallis Church became the Village Church, came and led worship for us. Last week, our worship team led worship for us. Um, this week, the, the, the group that's here is largely from Cultivate. They're largely a part of Cultivate's worship team, which, yeah, which is awesome. <laughs> Next week... Rebecca Chad's going to be here. She's from Praise Assembly. The week after, Resonate's going to be here. They're another church that meets in town that meets in our building on Sunday nights. The week after that, Aaron's going to actually come back and lead worship. So, so out of six weeks, five of the Sundays are churches in our community coming alongside of us and walking with us because we're all on the same team. And, uh, and so I'm just so grateful. So if you get a chance, if you, re if you see someone on stage and you don't recognize them, it's probably because they're from a different church and they're giving up a Sunday servant at their church to come serve our church. And uh, so tell them thank you, give them a hug. Um, if, if you're watching online uh, and you know anybody that goes to Cultivate or Resonate or the Village Church or Praise Assembly, um, just tell them thank you next time you see them for being generous and, uh, and, and loving us well. And we're so thankful for that. So here we go, Matthew 20. You got a Bible? Um, before we read Matthew 20, you're not going to understand Matthew 20 if you don't know about Matthew 19, okay? Matthew 20 just starts with a parable, 
Now, a parable is a, uh, often it's called a simple story with a single point. But if you just jump into the parable, you could end up with some weird ideas. And we have to understand the context, what's going on. So Matthew 19, all the way back to the beginning of Matthew 19, back in August, we talked about there are these kids coming to Jesus. Now, now actually, adults are, are bringing kids to Jesus, right? But they're coming to Jesus and the disciples, right, as an important and wise as disciples are, think this is a poor use of Jesus' time. And so they're trying to keep the kids from going away. And then Jesus says this really profound, um, like vision-shifting statement when he says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Okay? They were the most unwanted, overlooked, often in a lot of cultures. They weren't even given names until they, until they were older in life because they were just they, they, they were just kids. Nobody cared about them. But Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to the ones that nobody else cares about, right? So then right after that, there's this guy comes along that we call the young, rich ruler. The exact opposite of children. He has power. He has money. He has influence. He has notoriety. He comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, man, how do, how do I get this kingdom? How do I get eternal life? How do I get what these kids have? How do I get that? And, and Jesus says, well, I mean, you know what scriptures say? It's, you know, there's a whole list of things you're supposed to do. Do those things. And, and he says, I, I've, I've done all those things. And yet in this like really beautiful moment, he recognizes himself that there's something more to life than being moral. That just doing the right stuff still feels him leaving, leaves him feeling empty and like there's something more. And so he says to Jesus, he says, I've done all those things since I was a little kid. Like, what am I lacking? What am I missing? And Jesus gives him a command that he gives to no one else. He says, he says go sell all your stuff and follow me. And we talked about last week that um, it's not about his stuff. The issue is not his stuff. It's about his identity right? He's inviting him to a new way of living to where he is no longer the young rich ruler, but he's the young Jesus follower. And so Peter and the disciples are watching all this happen and their minds have just got to be spinning because the people that they thought were out in the kids, Jesus welcomes in. And then the people that they thought must be in because they're good moral people and God has clearly, you know, apparently blessed them financially. Those people walk away sad, so Peter says to him, Peter speaks up and he says, um, Jesus, we, we left everything. Like, what, what are we going to get for leaving everything? And, 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 it's, and it's important to recognize, it's an interesting thing to notice, that Jesus doesn't rebuke his question. A lot of times, like, we, we would think, because of the way we view Jesus, that Jesus would look at him and go, how dare you ask me? How dare you think that I owe you anything? Isn't this enough? But he doesn't. He, he actually, he answers him in, in, this, um, in a way to try and describe something that words can't describe, right? The, and literally in the Greek, it says that he says um, that everything that you give up, you get a hundred times more. Now, it's an it's a, it's a, um, idiom that, that just means a lot, a lot more. So, so your Bibles might say like abundantly more or something like that. But what Jesus is trying to say is that 
that following him, that a Jesus life, that being a follower of Jesus, following in the footsteps of Jesus, is abundantly more beautiful and valuable and good and grace-filled and joy-filled than a hundred times any sacrifice you can make to follow him, right? So this week, Jesus, he, see, Jesus is, is smart. I don't know if you know this because he's God. And so Jesus answers his question, but Jesus doesn't leave Peter there because if he left Peter there, then Peter could begin to think that he could make God owe him, that he could have some sort of health and wealth prosperity gospel where uh, everything he gives, that God is indebted to him now. And so God's going to, Jesus is going to get to Peter's heart. He's going to get to the heart issue of Peter with this parable. So we come to this parable. Now, when I was in college, I want to give you a fair warning. When I was in college, um, I, I, I took a preaching class. You're welcome. Um, actually, I took a lot of them. And in one of my classes, my professor said this. He said, never, ever, for any reason, read more than two verses at a time. People are not smart enough to pay attention for two verses. But I think my professor's wrong. So join with me and let's prove him wrong. 16 verses, you ready? Buckle your seatbelts, brace yourself. You guys have some coffee this morning. You need a comfortable position, don't fall asleep. Okay, here we go, you ready? 16 verses, can we do it? Okay, here we go, listen, here we go. Now it's beautiful because it's a parable. It's meant to be a story told. So listen to the story and envision the story with me as Jesus tells the story. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he'd agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, which is about 9 a.m., and saw others standing idly in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I'll give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour, which is about noon, and the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m., and did the same thing. And about the 11th hour, which is like 5 o'clock in the evening, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why, why have you been standing here idly all day long? They said to him, well, it's nobody hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius, which is about a day's wages. Okay, so even those who come at five o'clock get a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. It is, not, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. So here's the deal. Um, in every culture, in every society, in every time of human existence, there are, based on cultural assumptions, there are temptations to our soul as a society, as a people, that are um, heightened 
that, that, are, that are magnified because of the culture that we live in, right? So, 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 so here's an example, okay? Um, in the 21st century American West Christian faith, one of the temptations that is heightened because the culture we live in kind of magnifies this and, and can, can, can build up this temptation into where we think it's even normal is our own independence, our own individual autonomy and independence from one another. Because of the culture that we live in, we can begin to believe and begin to look at the Christian faith through the lens of being an independent and autonomous person. Here's the problem. The Bible. Like the Bible actually almost never has any comprehension of you as a Christian alone. Uh, one time someone asked me, you know, where does the Bible talk about church membership? And I said, to the Bible writers, being committed to a local body is so obvious, it would seem absurd to them to waste ink. Here, here's how I can tell you. So um, one of the most consistent commands that we are given um, is a collection of commands as follows Jesus called the one another commands. Carry one another's burdens. Um, pray for one another. Serve one another. Love one another. All these commands, one another. Here's the problem. If you can be a Christian, autonomous and independent from other believers, you cannot do those things. In fact, there's, there's, a, there, there's a, a passage that we um, often have misused. For a long time, we used it to say that you shouldn't get tattoos. And we would talk about that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And, and we would say that, that you individually, you and you and you and you and you, that you are the temple. Here's the problem. In the Greek, the you is not that. The you is you, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That there is something, it's one of the reasons that we believe that corporate worship, whether you can sing or not, how many of you guys saw on my Facebook this week, um, Ancestry uh, 23 and Me confirmed that I'm tone deaf, okay? Uh, spent 100 bucks and they said, it is very unlikely that you can match pitch. So that was money well worth for all of us, right? But whether you are tone deaf or not, whether you can match pitch or not, there's something important and powerful about the body gathering together. And we can begin to distort our Christian view when we, lead, when we see it through the lens of our culture that so highly values our independence and our autonomy. And we begin to make and live out our Christian faith in weird ways. In fact, one of the um, phrases, one of the images that's used of us is the body, that we collectively are the body, that we find our purpose and significance as a component, as a part of the whole body of Christ. You see, today, because of our culture and our worldviews, we have a greater risk of distorting or even being rebellious to what God's called us to because our culture so values being autonomous and independent, it can seep into the way that we live our lives. Another one, it's gonna be um, more uncomfortable for all of us, the biblical or historically accurate word would be the word gluttony. And gluttony is not primarily about food. Gluttony just means living in excess. And because of the prosperous nature of the culture we live in, we have an elevated temptation to live in excess. 
and to, to ignore what God has called us to. It's a temptation that most of the world today doesn't even have to think about. It's a temptation that most of human history was not tempted in the way that we are to live our lives in excess. Jesus here is confronting in the disciples, in Peter specifically, one of those things that I think is a heightened, elevated temptation because the culture that we live in. I think that what Jesus is critiquing in Peter and the disciples in their heart is when we live our lives through the lens of comparison. Uh, the great theologian, Teddy Roosevelt, is credited with saying, comparison is the thief of joy, right? That, that when we live our lives, comparing our lives, our posture, or what we have with someone else, it robs us of the joy of the goodness of God seen in our life. Here, 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 um, you guys know this, right? Spend an hour on social media. Um, maybe watch one of those uh, uh, flipper shows, right? They come in, dumpy house. They pay like $16,000 um, for a house. They pay $16,000, just in case you're curious, because it's in Alabama, right? Nobody wants to live in Alabama, Okay, so $16,000 is a lot of money to spend to live in Alabama. But they buy these like dumpers and they flip them and you watch an hour of this show. Maybe you go to like some home goods show or, or maybe for you it's like hunting. You go to like some hunter or gun show thing at the state fair or something like that. You never come home from those things, right? You never spend an hour on Instagram and then walk into your bathroom and go, oh, man, I love my bathroom. I mean, you know, just the kind of like 1984 dingy, dark vibe. Like, that's me. Like, I love this, right? You walk into your bathroom and go, oh, man, this is so gross. I should, I should put a new mirror in here. Who picked out this mirror? This mirror is ugly and so dated. You're the one who picked out that mirror, right? I should knock out this and put a skylight in. And when we begin to allow ourselves to compare our position or our place in life with others, it begins to rob us of joy. I, I wonder, if the other guys had never shown up, how do you think the guys that left at 6 a.m. would have responded? They're, 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 they're day laborers. They don't know how they're going to pay their bills that day. A guy shows up to them and says, hey, if you come to work for me, I will pay you a full, fair day's wages so you can provide for your family. If nobody else has showed up and that guy came up to him and gave him a denarius, he'd have walked home rejoicing. Man, look, <laughs> we're eating good tonight. We're going to take care of things tonight. But the moment they see what someone else has, it robs them of the joy of the gift. It robs them of the joy. When we begin to live our lives through a lens of comparing ourselves, our position, our experience, our stuff, one with another begins to rob us of joy. I'm just going to be transparent, little, little, little honesty here. Um, I, I have an iPhone um, because Jesus loves me. Um, you know how you know you know when when I want a new iPhone every single fall. You know why? 
because Apple releases a new iPhone every single fall. As soon as they come out with a new iPhone, I'm like, oh, a new iPhone, mine, oh, it's so dingy and dark. The pictures, can you imagine? It takes like 7,000 megapixel pictures. Mine, here's the problem, you guys, okay? Go with me here, believe me, trust me, okay? Mine only has two camera lenses. Did you know that? How cheap and old school. I can only take pictures that are photography levels that would have costed thousands of dollars a decade ago with two cameras. The new iPhone, you know how many cameras the new iPhone has? It has three. If only I had three cameras. My, my iPhone, it's in a case because I broke enough of them that I finally bent and got myself a case. Mine has like rounded edges. Did you see the new iPhone? It looks awesome. It's got square edges. Have you seen it? Hey, hey, you know, you know when the last iPhone had square edges? The one before mine. And I saw my phone and thought, it has round edges, that's so awesome. The moment we begin to compare our position, our stuff, our experiences one with another, it begins to rob us of the thing that was meant to be a blessing to begin with. A thing that was meant to be good to begin with. But it's not just there, when we begin to compare it breathes this kind of dissatisfaction that robs us of joy. But that dissatisfaction finds itself in voice, in grumbling. Look, look at what it says um, in verse 11. Well, let's start actually verse 10. It says this. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. They grumbled at the landowner. They began to complain about the landowner. You know this. If you have kids, you've experienced this, right? You buy your kids a toy, a gift, a present for their birthday or for um, uh, Christmas or for some other celebration, and they love it and are excited about it for about six minutes. And then you know what happens seven, in the seventh minute? A commercial comes on. And you just bought them a Nerf gun that shoots 10 darts a second. But they see a commercial for a Nerf gun that shoots 15 darts a second. And then this 10 dart Nerf gun is a piece of trash. Who would ever take this to a Nerf gun war? Right? When there's 15 a second Nerf gun guns out there. Every single time that we begin to grumble and begin to complain about the gifts that God has given us, like we're demeaning him. It's an assault, it's an insult to him. Now, now, now hear me really clearly here, okay? There is a difference between grumbling and being honest. The, the, the Psalms are really honest. Scripture is really honest. There, are, there is heartache and pain and brokenness, and being honest with God often is one of the most honoring ways we can worship him, is bringing all of our brokenness to him and all of our pain and all of our heartache. But when we begin to grumble and complain about the things that we have, the experiences we have, the life that we have, robs us of joy, creates dissatisfaction 
It gives voice in grumbling, but it doesn't end there because our grumbling, a lot of times we'll grumble and complain and we'll grumble and complain to a spouse or to a coworker or to a friend and, and, and they may even affirm your complaining because look at what happens in verse 12. Verse 12, saying these last, saying these last men have worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. Their complaint is valid, is it not? I mean, let's be honest. If you were uh, someone who worked in the vineyard and you were a part of the, 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 the vineyard's union of ancient Near East, and you show up to payday, and the dude who worked one hour gets paid the same that you did, and you had to be out in the sun, and the heat, and the wind, and the, and the, 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 the dirt, and the dust, man, you'd be calling your rep. This isn't fair, this isn't right. It's not okay, it shouldn't be this way. I worked 12 hours, they worked 45 minutes. You see, the deal is like, the complaint they have is probably fair. I'm sure you've heard it. I was told often when I was growing up that if you want fair, you can go to the county fairgrounds because fair don't live here. Okay? It, it seems unfair. And, and, and you are probably in this moment trying to convince yourself and justify the grumbling and complaining you've done to your spouse and to your coworker and to your neighbors and to your friends to say, it's not fair. I, I, I'm the one who put in the work. I'm the one who showed up early and came in on my day off and they got the promotion. I'm the one who put in all the work at school, put all the effort and they're the one who gets the job. I'm the one who's sacrificed and been faithful and given up my dreams to be able to love my family well and to serve my family well. And my family's the one falling apart while they're out gallivanting along carelessly. I'm the one who sacrificed for my kids and, and made sure that they were at church and sacrificed even my comfort at church to make sure that they were connected into a place. And now my kids are the ones wandering off the rails. It's not fair. It's not fair. You see, when we begin to compare our position in life, our experiences, or our stuff, one with another, it begins to breed dissatisfaction. That dissatisfaction gives voice in grumbling, and that grumbling is an accusation against the giver that he's unjust. But it doesn't end there. Look again at what it says in verse 12. Just the first couple words, it says this. Saying, these men, those guys, living a life of comparison isolates us and leaves us lonely. Can you imagine Jesus telling this parable? At the end, they're all getting together and, and they're giving out all the money. And uh, the, the foreman comes or the, the landowner comes and he pulls the guys who showed up last. They've been out in the field, realistically, let's say like 27 minutes because they showed up. They had to go out and work. They had to get their barrel and all that kind of stuff. They walked back, okay? So they've been out there for maybe 30 minutes and he walks up to him and he gives them a denarius and you can watch everybody else around the circle. Their eyes kind of begin to go, 
Because <laughs> even the guys who've only been there three hours are like, if he's getting a denarius, <laughs> look, look what I'm getting, right? And he goes around and he gives the guy who's been there three hours a denarius, the guy who's been there six hours a denarius, the guy who's been there nine hours a denarius, gives the guy 12 hours a denarius. Now, what do you think the walk back to town was like? The guy who got a Daenerys for working 12 hours was like inviting his 35-minute work buddy over to his house for dinner that night? No. Those guys, those people. You see, when we live a life where we allow our hearts to foster, to cultivate, or even tolerate an attitude of comparison one through another, between another. It creates in us dissatisfaction, grumbling, claims of injustice, and it will leave you alone and lonely. Now, just from like a sociological, secular perspective, we can see the impact, the negative impact it has on our relationships, on our marriages, on our families, when we set out to compare our lives consistently one with another. And even as a non-Jesus follower, like even if you have no interest in Jesus, it should be easy for us to look at our experience and the experience of the world and understanding that when we allow ourselves to enter, entertain ideas of comparing our lives with one another, that it's destructive. But if you're a follower of Jesus, comparison and allowing yourself to compare your life to others may be the obstacle this morning that's preventing you from drawing closer to Jesus. Here's, here's, let me explain it this way. Um, parable, we said at the beginning, simple story, single point. Now, a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times in parables, um, you can find that people or things represent people or things in real life, okay? So I'm gonna need your help for those of you who are in the room, okay? In this parable, there's a vineyard owner or a landowner, okay? In this parable, who's the vineyard owner or the landowner? God, God, right? He's God, he's the, he's the one who owns it, he's the one who has it, and um, uh, to, to be more specific, God's a, God's a great, to be more specific, God the Father, Okay, he, he owns it, he, it's his. Now, the workers, whether they're there for 12 hours, nine hours, six hours, three hours, or 35 minutes, who are the workers? Us, us, we're the workers, okay? What's the denarius? Jesus. 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 So, so go with me here. Let's retell the story, uh, understanding who the characters in the story are. God, who owns this land, this kingdom, Jesus might say, of goodness and beauty and life and blessing. A vineyard in the Old Testament was often an illustration of life and goodness and abundance. He owns this vineyard. And he goes to a city to go find people, an important part of the gospel. They didn't come looking for him. He went after them. He went and searched out. He went to the marketplace and found people that had no purpose, had no significance, had no community, had no way of feeding themselves. And he said, hey, hey, hey why don't you come? Why don't you come and, and join my kingdom? Why don't you come to my vineyard? Why don't you come to my place of blessing and life and goodness? And if you do, I will give you what is necessary. 
denarius. I will give you Jesus. If you come and follow me, I will give you Jesus, life in Jesus. And at the end, when everything is sorted out, there's some that have been there a long time, and that may be you, gave your whole life, gave, gave decades of following Jesus, sacrificed in mighty and great ways. And, but he begins with the one who's been there 35 minutes. And he says, for coming to my vineyard and following Jesus, you get Jesus, you get my son, you get life, you get he, he who is the center of life and goodness and hope and healing and reconciliation. And, and the, the ones who, who've served the 12 hours, they see this, and, and us, we see this, we're like, <laughs> they, they only served for 35 minutes, and they got Jesus. I don't even know if that person showed up at the church more than three times in their life, and they got Jesus, and they got healing, and they got life, and they got joy because of Jesus. <laughs> I've been here 12 hours. God's going to owe me some big stuff. And the time comes, and God comes to us and says, for being faithful and following, here's what you get. You get life in Jesus. Do you hear what the 12-hour people say? What? That's it? That's all we get is Jesus? Wait, 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 a second. wait a second. I left everything. Do you remember that time they asked for an extra offering and I gave an extra offering and I didn't get to go on that vacation and I gave up my time and I spent my Saturday. You remember all those things and I get the same thing they do? Can you just hear? Can you just hear the, the demeaning insult of the gift of God to us? He came after us. And he offers us all of himself. What more could he give us than all of himself? What more could he give us than his son fully and completely came and lived a perfect life and died in our place? And yet we have the audacity to go, it's not enough. It's not enough. It, I, I, I wonder... Just honestly, like if you're in that place, look, look, how could you ever expect to grow closer to a God that you think is stingy and unfair? When you come before God and say, God, you, did you not see what I did? How could you ever? Why would you want to grow closer to a God that you think is stingy and unfair? And yet, Jesus says at the end, he says, uh, it's my stuff. Like, don't I have the right to give the fullness of me to whoever I want? Isn't that enough for you? So today, if we find in ourselves that we've allowed the subtle pervasiveness of our culture to allow us to measure our life in comparison one to another, like, what do we, what do we do if we find ourselves grumbling about the position in life, thinking that God somehow owes us more than he's given us, what do we what do? We do? Um, you, you know the Gospel of John? We might, I was thinking, we're not going to do this, but it, wouldn't it be great if we went from the book of Matthew and then we just spent 17 years in the Gospel of John too? Just all of my 40 years here will just be Gospels, just Jesus all, which is probably a good legacy to leave. Um, but the Gospel of John ends oddly. 
Matthew, we're going to get there eventually in, in about 2032. We're going to get to Matthew 28. And Matthew 28 ends with the Great Commission. And it's this great call on the church. It's awesome. But John ends weirdly. You can look it up later, but let me just read you the story a little bit. You see, Jesus is walking with his disciples. And he just had this conversation with Peter. And it's a really great conversation because Peter denied Jesus three times. And so then P Jesus is kind of doing this thing with Peter where he's kind of helping restore Peter. And it's this really beautiful moment. But then it says this. Verse 20 of the end of John. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. It's quite a bold claim, because uh, if you don't know, that's John. He's the one who wrote this. It's just like a little, like, like a little power move, right? He's writing this. He saw the one that Jesus really loves, right? The one who would also lean back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, uh, oh, and said, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, look at where Peter's eyes are, okay? Looking back and seeing John, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The moment we allow our eyes to drift off of Jesus himself onto the things, privilege, opportunities, position, recognition, or experiences of anyone else. Jesus' words to us today. If I, want to, if I want to do that with him, what's that to you? You, you follow me. The cure to a kind of comparison in our life that breeds dissatisfaction and grumbling and, and claims against God that separates us from God and pushes our heart further and further away from God, the solution to that is you follow me. What, what does it matter what I'm going to do with your neighbor? What does it matter what I'm going to do with your coworker? What does it matter what I'm going to do with those people? What is that to you? You follow me. So my hope today, for the next 10, 12 minutes that we have together, is that maybe just in this moment, we can, for a moment, be honest with ourselves. When we have begun to find dissatisfaction and grumbling and complaining against God, and that we'd hear the words of Jesus, what I want to do with them, what's that to you? You follow me. And that maybe just for these next 12 minutes, we can refix our eyes on Jesus because the reward is him. The reward is life in him, is peace, is healing, is hope, is resurrection and restoration in Jesus. And what more could we ask of God than that he give us all of himself?